Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about how to talk about controversial issues like grown-ups. In the last couple of weeks, there's been a big flare-up amongst kind of the evangelical Christian circles in which Stephen and I run as fairly well-known band Gungor's lead singer and writer Michael Gungor posted some thoughts on the doctrine of creation, which were then misquoted by World Magazine, surprising precisely no one. And this led to a general conflagration on the Christian internet, which is a small subset of the internet at large and has many of the same dysfunctions of the internet at large. And we'll get to that. First, give you a little background. The post Michael Gungo wrote, he basically outlined how he does not affirm the idea that the earth was created six to 10,000 years ago in seven literal days. He then proceeded to say, actually, I think the whole first section of chapters in Genesis are basically myth, and they're beautiful, and they're interesting, and they're true in some way, but there wasn't a real guy Adam or a real gal Eve in a garden, etc. The evangelical response was grumpy, we'll, we'll put it that way. Uh, yeah, grumpy is a nice word. Yeah, <laughs> uh, And there are ways in which this is deserved and ways it's not deserved, and there's a long history here of discussion about what inerrancy means in terms of saying the Bible is without error, in terms of saying how that relates to our doctrines of things like creation. We're not actually going to talk about that. Uh, we could, and in fact, if you want to know more, by the time this episode is published, I'll have a blog post up on my website, and it'll be in the show notes going into a bit of that. But we thought it might be more interesting instead to come at this sort of from the meta-narrative standpoint and ask, how do we talk about these kinds of controversies, whether within the Christian subculture context, which is where we will begin, or within the broader context of culture at large, and do so as adults? Because I think the thing that has disappointed Stephen and me most about this is that there's been an awful lot of not handling it like adults on all sides of this conversation. Right, and that's been the thing that's particularly caused me to bring this to Chris's attention repeatedly, is this whole thing seems very, very dumb. It just seems very name-calling, finger-pointing, like you're either with us or against us, like very, very harsh, very brittle, just not anything even remotely approximating the democratic process, much less Christian charity. Uh, and so it's been very difficult for me as a person who is, you know, skeptical of all things Christian culture, as I have talked about on this very podcast before. Um, it's difficult for me to look at this and and say, guys, this this is why some people think that you're morons. Like, you can't even... Like, you can't even have a conversation with somebody who's 90% on your team. <laughs> like, it, th this is a challenge. Now, to be fair, as Chris noted before, this is not a problem totally exclusive to the Christian community. This is a problem of any community. If you look deep enough into it, there will be schisms and splits and arguments and discussions and controversies. So this is not just a Christian culture thing. You can go back into history. You can look at any number of, of movements or ideas going on today in politics or social movements. This is not a new thing, which is what Chris pointed out to me, because he is sometimes a little bit more objective about these things than I am. <laughs> and so 
as we were thinking about, okay, well, if this isn't a problem just inherent to Christian culture, then how do we use Christian culture to talk about this in a way that, you know, appeals to both our Christian listeners and our secular listeners, which is something that we always want to do here on Winning Slowly. And so that's where we came to this sort of idea. How do we get away from the finger-pointy, name-calling, brittle, brutal discussions over things that, you know, are minor points in the greater sphere of whatever those people are in? Right. Or, or even, and this is where it becomes really tricky, sometimes when they're not minor points, are there ways to address even really serious issues in ways that are acting like grown-ups rather than a bunch of angry right. children screaming at each right. other? Because some of the things Michael Gungor has written, I have serious reservations about. Even as a guy who's an old Earth creationist myself, I have serious reservations about some of the things he said. But that doesn't give us an excuse to be jerks and, you know— even when I'm interacting with someone with whom I disagree profoundly on yet still larger issues than this, there are ways to do it that evince Christian charity, and there are ways to do it that don't. And broadly, as people who are interacting with people who are different from us, we need to be able to have conversations about serious things of varying degrees of importance and do it in a way that doesn't devolve into, well, you're an idiot. Well, you reject whatever is the most important and true thing. Well, you are just a fool. I mean... Yeah. And what's also interesting, I think we'll get to at the end of the episode, is how we deal with the difference in when some people think one thing is a minor issue and mm -hmm. some other people think the same thing is a major issue, which is partially what's going on in some of the... Uh, debate around the Gungor issue. So let's just start at the beginning. How do we deal with minor issues as adults? Number one, actually, this is really number zero. This is baseline. If you're going to have a conversation like, an like adults, you have to remember that the person with whom you're talking is a person. You're not dealing with some robot out there who needs to be smashed in the face. As much as the anonymity of the internet can make that tempting, you're not actually dealing with a robot who needs to be smashed in the face, I promise. Right. Unless right. unless Apple and Microsoft's technology has gotten much better than anyone has told us. It's not true. <laughs> the The person on the other side is a person, and they should be treated with all of the kindness and respect and charity that deserves. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you even have to be nice, per se. Sometimes people say things that are really, really seriously wrong. But we're, we're starting back at the beginning. If you've got a minor disagreement with somebody, try to remember that it's a person, number zero. Then number one, <laughs> remember that you prefer it when people try to interpret your position as, as a way that you would represent it. And... One of my favorite examples of this is Christian philosopher Plantinga, Alvin Plantinga, taking in a debate his opponent's view and saying, well, actually, I think you kind of undersold yourself. Here's a stronger version of your argument. And then proceeded to disagree with it and so on. But when you're going to have a disagreement with somebody, especially over a relatively minor issue, well, no, I take that back. Under any circumstances, 
look for the best possible interpretation of what the person with whom you disagree is saying rather than the worst. Yeah, and that is a serious thing that people do not do. People almost always, when things have devolved into yelling rhetoric, um, whether actually yelling or using yelly rhetoric on the <laughs> internet, people all have... Caps. <laughs> all caps! exclamation marks! Uh, people have usually read in the worst possible aspect of this particular argument. And this is challenging because if we are engaged in an ongoing conversation about a particular topic, we have seen many different arguments about this particular mm -hmm. thing. So it's easy to project the worst one or a compilation of all of them that you feel is the fullest argument onto this particular person. Sometimes people aren't making the same argument that you expect that they're going to make. Um, and neither are they making rational leaps that you feel they are going to make because you have heard this argument before. <laughs> taking, taking people at face value is very important. Now, it's kind of an intellectual game to be like, because you said this, you're going to say this next. And even though that works for Sherlock Holmes, it doesn't work for you. You're just, not Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm just, sorry. Just point blank. <laughs> like trying to project what people are going to say will very often devolve into angry rhetoric because when attacked, people usually don't say calmly, no, that's not what I said. You're making a mistake about the projections of what you feel I'm about to say. That's not what people say when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> It's just Instead, not. it's more like you're a jerk or you're an idiot, et cetera, and it escalates from there. Right. I think it's helpful when we're thinking about these kinds of issues, going back to that rule zero, that the other person is a person, to remember some of the things that apply in basic human relationships. You know, if Stephen says to his fiance or I say to my wife something and they turn around and misinterpret it, it frustrates us. And likewise, if we misinterpret them, it frustrates them. Mm -hmm. That's just a normal thing. And you know, in the course of being married for a bit over five years now, my wife and I have to talk often about, no, that's not actually what I said or what I meant. And you actually put the worst spin on it you could have. That's the opposite of what I meant. And that happens right. sometimes. I, I assume she means something hostile and she was just asking a, an innocent question. If that's not going to be particularly helpful in, you know, your marriage or your friendships with people, it's also probably not going to be helpful in your interactions with anyone else. Because right. again, rule zero, we're dealing with people. Yeah. And it's really difficult because if you have this, you know, ongoing intimate personal relationship with someone and you still have the ability to misinterpret mm. what they're saying, it's going to be even more likely that you're going to be able to misinterpret something that someone you've never even met on the internet has said or somebody that you only have had cursory passing interaction with in a acquaintance sort of way in a public setting or somebody you're not as good friends with as your you know your spouse so there's that level of intimacy doesn't preclude you from being misunderstood and as you go farther and farther down the chain it gives more and more possibility of being misunderstood now that's not to say that there aren't people who aren't great listeners and who do all of these things very well and are very cautious debaters and are very um, charitable um, arguers. Those are definitely things that are true. So we're not saying that this is an impossible sort of situation. 
But we are saying that it is an unlikely, uncommon, unnatural sort of situation where we would say, I'm going to set aside my personal reaction to this particular saying, and I'm going to try to hear what's happening. I'm going to listen to the entirety of it. I'm going to read the entirety of it. And then I'm going to formulate a response based on that particular argument or that particular statement and not everything that I have previously preconstructed. <laughs> right. And and doing that gives you the opportunity then to have a conversation that might be profitable. And to tie this to this particular issue, you know, someone shows up and says, I'm not a young earth creationist, guys. If the immediate response is, that's because you don't believe the Bible and you hate Jesus, the conversation's over. Um, yeah. it, the shouting has begun, but the conversation's over. If right. instead you say, well, what do you mean by that? And are you aware of some of this interpretive history even in the last century? And maybe we can come to a point of mutual agreement. And even if not, at least we're going to understand each other's positions better you know the right. the world magazine article that kicked this whole fiasco off was horrifically misrepresenting gungor's actual stated position despite the fact that like i said it's a position with which i have some serious reservations the way it was portrayed by this magazine was far different from what was actually the case because someone got in their grumpy mode and decided they were going to go shout about it on the internet you know, we've talked before about representing people accurately when you report on them or talk about them. And the same mm. thing is true here. Represent people accurately, not only when you're talking about them, which is what world got wrong, but when you're talking to them, try to say, mm -hmm. you know, we talk in <laughs> marriage counseling situations, et cetera, of saying, this is what I heard you say. Is that what you meant? There hasn't been much of that on this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, not at all. And And generally speaking, I think it's fair to say on the internet, there's not a lot of is this what you meant or is this just what I heard? Right. And partially that's because people don't go on the internet by and large to have rational, logical, contemplative discussion. <laughs> you know, and we'll, this is we'll also link the obligatory XKCD here. Yeah. Someone is wrong on the internet. Someone is wrong on the internet. This is just how the internet has evolved or how it's developed. Um, comment sections are war zones. They are not places where you would go and sit down and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> Were they actual places? Like, this is not how comment sections are. And so even though there are many people who are taking pains to change the way that we do comments or delete comment sections or... There are people who are thinking about this, but still, the point is that as the internet evolved from this essentially one giant chat room to <laughs> what we know today, it changed. And there's there's less uh, cohesiveness of the people who are in the internet, which is a vast understatement, but there's less uh, charity between these particular groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we can extend this to, you know, politics. I mean, this is one large argument that the rest of the world makes about American politics and some people in America make about American politics is that there is no good faith or charity between the two sides of the aisle because they automatically assume deception on either side. President Bush lied. President Obama lied. Everybody lied. Everything's a lie. The cake is a lie. The, the cake was a lie, though. <laughs> uh, so... 
so then we get to the second half of the question, which is, okay, so assuming charity, but we still disagree. Because right. that happens. I mean, when you get right down to it, there are people who are strongly, again, coming back to this one core example, just as an example, there are people who are strongly committed to a young earth creation view. There are people like me who are committed to the inerrancy of scripture, but take an old earth view. And then you've got people like Gungor, who Michael Gungor, who is committed to the truth of scripture, but believes that some parts of it are mythological and so on. We disagree. And in some ways we disagree significantly. And then to step outside that, okay, I'm going to disagree yet more significantly with someone who's Jewish or Muslim or an atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist about very fundamental realities of the world. So charity only takes you so far. Charity is an essential ingredient to talking like grown-ups, whether on the internet or in person or whatever other context, but it only takes you so far. So what do we do when we still disagree? Yeah, that's a great, important thing to be concerned about because the natural response that we have, um, the most common response that we have is to argue, is to say, if I can't be 100% right and you believe me 100% by the end of this conversation, neither of us have won. <laughs> and that and by the end of this conversation thing is such a huge part of it, I think. Yeah, and that's just not real. I mean, there are situations where you can have a conversation with someone, perhaps who's undecided, and by the end of the conversation they can say, you know what, I feel like you might have a good point there. I think, <laughs> I think, I'm gonna, I think you're right. But if you have somebody who's firmly entrenched, especially if you're talking about issues of religion or issues of deep-seated political views, these are not conversations that somebody's going to say, whoa, I, I, I suddenly understand your point completely. You are correct. I'm going to go change my life radically. <laughs> that happens every once in a while, but it's not the normal pattern for changing not, people's not lives. Not the normal pattern, no. And so I think that gets back to what Chris said was the end of the conversation bit is the most important bit. I think a lot of times there's just a lack of patience. There's a need to resolve it right now and a need to get everything sorted this conversation and this minute and an unwillingness to let things play out over a longer period of time and unwillingness to attempt to persuade and to offer the demonstrate the credibility of one's position by sustaining charitable engagement. And I think particularly as Christians thinking about that, there's a, a lack of trusting God that if someone's heart is going to change, it's going to be something that God accomplishes, not something mm -hmm. that my eloquence accomplishes. Mm -hmm. But and... my eloquence is so great, guys. <laughs> my eloquence right. is awesome. Uh, I only say like approximately 10 or 20 times an episode. <laughs> I, I've been working on my my interesting ways. Uh, <laughs> and my uhs, he says, after saying uh. So there's there's the necessity of patience and, again, as Christians, the necessity of trusting God that things are providentially being arranged. And that, number one, that takes a lot of stress out of these kinds of conversations. It, it mm -hmm. also lets you take a step back and remember that this is the person you're talking to. And then it lets you have the patience to say, hey, I enjoyed talking with you about this. Let's do it again sometime. Or... Actually, I'm really frustrated. Can we just talk about... I'd, I'd be happy to keep talking with you about this sometime, but I don't want to start yelling at you. Can we talk about it again in a week? I'll buy you coffee. You know, and being able to take that kind of a step and take a, 
longer view. See? Pointing slowly. Hey, knew we were going to get there. <laughs> Being able to take a longer view, you know, that gives you a lot of freedom in these areas. And it gives yeah. you the opportunity to cool down when you start getting mad. And, and sometimes it's natural to start getting frustrated and upset with someone when it's an issue about which you care passionately. Yep. When it's an issue that you think really is really important. Yep. You know, what when somebody who's really, really strongly pro-gay rights sits down and has a conversation with me and we've got different articulations and different, very different understandings of what human sexuality is supposed to look like and what it means as a human person, it's natural that we're going quite possibly to get frustrated with each other in the conversation. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have it, but it means we're going to have to be really, really diligent to be mindful of, of the ways we go about it and to be willing to set it aside for a while and come back to it when we're both not so worked up. And if you yeah. have this longer view that people's minds don't change overnight, it gives you the freedom to do that. It gives who you know people on both sides the freedom to say, okay, I can take a deep breath. I can walk away. I can remember that we're friends. We can talk again some other time and not shout at each other. Right. And I think the most important part of this is this engaged, sustained relationship. This is not something that Americans post-1950 are very good at, just statistically. It's not. We don't do neighbors well. We don't right. do community involvement well. You know, I'm not saying that there's no neighborly love and that there's no one participating in communities because there definitely are. But statistically, the amount of time that we've spent interacting with neighbors and in community service and in community organizations has decreased rapidly since 1950. Mm -hmm. And people's separation from family has gone up over the same period. Yeah. It's, it's just a way that our culture has developed again. And that's not a good thing, but that's an entirely different episode. What I mean to say by this is that because we don't have this model of, okay, we're going to be friends here for a real long time, regardless <laughs> of whether we disagree or not, because you're going to live next door to me for a good long time, we don't have the sort of model for, okay, that conversation was pretty crappy. Maybe I'll just never talk to that person again. Yeah, we don't have a good model that says that conversation was pretty crappy, I guess I'm going to have to see him on Saturday at the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's, there's just not that sort of kind of collegiality anymore, which is unfortunate. And that's what's necessary for real debate and real ideas to percolate and change people. One of the ways that, um, to go back to your example, that the gay rights movement um, gained steam was that they just kept existing in relationship to people. And so as more and more people started to know gay people, they became less and less, you know, afraid of, you know, this thing that in the 1800s and 1700s just literally hardly existed in... Um, in public consciousness. Yeah, yeah, in public consciousness. I was looking for that word. Um, in America. I mean, definitely America is not the only place in the world, but as right. an example. So... That sort of sustained, prolonged involvement with people over issues and over just friendship is extremely important and would decrease the amount of this has to end now 
that really both Chris and I see as problematic for this sort of engagement. And then the last thing is, is there a time when harsh rhetoric is appropriate? Is there a situation, are there contexts in which calling people on the carpet is in fact the right thing to do? And I think the answer is yes, but knowing when and how and what that looks like is, it's a lost skill. It takes some wisdom that I think is usually lacking. You know, I well, see in in our communities, there mm. are basically two competing trains of thought and and these seem to be the well look jesus rebuked people and paul rebuked people so i'm gonna rebuke me some people and (laughs) you know what i mean you know exactly what i mean you've met that guy i just (laughs) i'm gonna rebuke me some people that's right okay continue and then we have the no no we should never ever speak anything but the most gentle way to anyone, no matter how wrong they are, because they're people made in the image of God, and we should never, ever speak unkindly to them. I'm going, guys, God speaks unkindly to people sometimes. There's, I don't know what the line is, and I'm certainly not going to claim that I've got it all figured out here, because I'm actually about to open it up and say, what do we think? I'm not sure. Yeah. But clearly there is the time and the place for both and leaping to one extreme or the other seems to me to be profoundly unhelpful in this because you've got the, I'm going to rebuke me some people. (laughs) And then they basically start rebuking the thou shalt never rebuke a person ever people, which generally is offered as a really gentle seeming rebuke. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I think one of the, the problems is that, well, separating one of the problems of, approaching this sort of conversation outside of a religious context is that there aren't any established rules for how you do this. There are no guidelines or structures for how you say, okay, we have reached an impasse. This is a situation where you are not going to X, I am not going to Y, which means that there will be no Zing, which (laughs) means that this is done. In, In Christian culture... If we read the Bible, the Bible lays out a set of structures for how that rebuke should go. Now, obviously, these have been interpreted in about as many ways as you can possibly do, but the point is is that there are structures there. There are established ways of disagreeing and then escalating the disagreement and then like finishing the argument mm-hmm. with over time. Yeah, there is that time thing again there. There is that time thing for sure. That's really important in this. But outside of, you know, Christian culture, there aren't a great amount of those structures. Right. We end up with without those norms, we end up falling back into sort of the kinds of shaming, public shaming actions on things that are deemed culturally inappropriate whoever the mm-hmm. cultural power is at any given moment. That's right. That's basically what we end up falling back on is I'm just going to shame you into shutting up. Right. And so I think that if we want to move forward on that, we have to start a conversation about what is acceptable. What is something that we can say, something that we can't say. And we see this every time that someone in public life comes out in a scandal of any variety. We see the big blast, and then we see all the celebrity reporting, and then we see generally a set of think pieces about, like, how do we relate to this? 
What is our response? How should it be? And so those are good things to do, and we need to keep doing those. We need to develop those and see those as important and real and not just see them as like interesting things to think about, but start to apply what are the ethics of this particular situation? What are the ethics of me arguing? This is not something that we reflect on very often. How do I argue? That's something that we need to do. Yeah, it is. And and I think even when we say, yeah, this does deserve public rebuke, whether as Christians to other Christians or when we think rebuke in a broad cultural sense is appropriate, secularly or Christians to the culture. And I think those times exist. But And we shouldn't just fall back on the legal system. Right, right. And there have to be ways of engaging that go beyond political power struggles and legal courtroom struggles and even cultural will flexing, you know. Mm-hmm. And finding the right one for each of those. This goes back to something we touched on very, very early on on one of our earliest Winning Slowly episodes. Finding the the way appropriate to the situation and to the topic under discussion. And then last but not least, being able to discern between different degrees of seriousness of particular topics. Mm-hmm. And then pulling it all in back to rule zero again. Remember right. that it's a person with whom you're talking. Right. So very briefly before we go... The whole issue of I think this is a major point and you think this is a minor point is extremely sticky. And if you extrapolate that into public life, there are a great many arguments in public life that are one person thinks this is very important. Another person thinks that this is unimportant. And so when we encounter those situations, be they religious, be they political, I think it's important that we deal with someone's perception of importance as if it were actually important. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So whether or not it is important, you have to deal with it as if it isn't as important as they think it is. Yep. And that's a hard thing to do. It is. Especially if it feels like silly that you would take (laughs) X thing seriously or Y thing seriously. You might be wrong. It might be that serious. And in addressing it in a serious way, you might find that out or not. And, and if so, not, addressing it that way might give you the credibility to help the person see that maybe it's less serious than they think. Either way, that charity angle, that treating the other person as you want to be treated and taking their arguments seriously and taking them in their best form and taking them the way the other person takes them gets you a long ways in all of this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Winning Slowly. All of our material is copyright under a creative commons attribution license you can do whatever you want with this as long as you don't just copy paste and call it your own the material at the beginning is licensed under the terms noted in the show notes and you can follow us as you like on app.net facebook or twitter and you can subscribe to the podcast on our website or on itunes until next time i have been chris kreitcho I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.